tonight on Arena. Karen Casey talks to us about her new album, Nine Apples of Gold, and Brian Dillon on his new collection of essays, Infinities. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. Nine Apples of Gold is the twelfth album from Irish singer Karen Casey. It builds on causes which Karen are, which are very close to Karen's heart, principally centred around female friendship, the promotion of women's rights, and drawing on stories, lessons, and strong female role models from Irish folklore. Originally from Waterford, Karen Casey was a founding member of the hugely successful Irish American band Solace before embarking on a solo career. Karen is now based in Cork, and she's in our Cork studio right now. And I, I suppose that title, Nine Apples of Gold, it has such a kind of magical feel to it. The number nine, the apples themselves, and and the, the, the colour of gold or the metal gold, all of them seem to have uh, pretty powerful connotations within them. It's related to uh, a, a female character from Irish folklore. Maybe tell us a little bit about her, if you would, Karen. Yeah, um, how are you, uh, Sean? Um it's um, well. The the actual line nine apples of gold is uh, from Manon Manon and MacLear, but I became uh, fascinated by his daughter, uh, who is still uh, residing in uh, Glandor, I believe, as a wave. Uh, Ton Cleana, um, as she was known, as uh, had these three otherworldly birds. And when they ate the apples of gold, they um, were said to sing. And in the singing, they were able to cure all healing. So I just kind of loved that whole yarn. And I I thought that'd be great to try and get into a song. And yeah, I was just reading a lot about all these uh, extraordinary mythological uh, people that we have. It's a lovely idea that she's alive in the form of a wave. And of mm. course, that's, that's that's what the name really means. Isn't it? Ton, mm-hmm. uh, being the Irish word for wave. Is, is she a powerful wave? Does she cause havoc? Or is she a gentle wave <laughs> that soothes um, individuals who come across her? Well, she's a bit of both. <laughs> <laughs> I like that notion. I think it underlies uh, the whole album in a way, really. You know, for a singer, that notion of whispering the wave being quiet and still or very gentle and then moving into uh, almost a roar or a bellow. So I, I kind of feel a lot of the album is is like that. It goes back and forth. There's an ebb and flow there. And I suppose that's what you're, you're interested in looking at is, is these female characters as rounded characters rather than just as one particular aspect of something. Yeah, as as like, you know, as a, a nuanced, you know, mm. and with depth and enjoying that and enjoying exploring all of that and trying to express it, I suppose. Um, right, well, let's, let's have a listen to okay. the, the title track then, a little bit of the title track, Nine Apples of Gold from Karen Casey's new album. Nine 
Nine Apples of Gold there, the title track from Karen Casey's new album. And Karen is in our Cork studio speaking with me this evening here in Arena. And there's a lovely, to, to keep up the theme you had there and what I was asking about the nature of, of Tun Chlena, mm-hmm. uh, what type of wave was she? Um, there's a lovely gentle feel and healing feel very much at the heart of that. But there's a fair amount of... Um, what sounds to me like outright uh, anger and annoyance on the album as well. Uh, is it safe to say, Karen? Yeah, I mean, I think overall it's pretty, uh, a lot of the songs are about love mm. and finding healing, uh, particularly in the natural world, which I think many of us did during the pandemic. And yes, there are, uh, there's a song, Sister, I'm Here For You, where I'm joined by the extraordinary Neve Dunn. Um, talking about female friendship and camaraderie mm. um, and then followed by a more uh, cross uh, song, <laughs> yeah. It's a nice way of putting yes. it. Uh, um, that song is called I, Li- I Live in a Country. Yes. You, you might describe the type of country that you describe <laughs> in that song for me. Well, it's I'm joined actually there by um, the gallant Pauline Scanlon but, um, and a, a lot of the song is spoken but we're, uh, I suppose, going back, looking back over Ireland and Ireland's mm. history and uh, declaiming the, some of the suffering that women's, women have had. Um, you know, there's lines in it. Uh, we are the witches that you could not burn for centuries. We are the daughters of the Magdalene laundries when you had us down upon our knees. We are the daughters of the mother and baby homes when you did what you pleased. Mm. So I suppose in trying to deal, you know, with these difficult uh, issues, I think song is a perfect way to do it. I mean, I'm a folk singer. That's that's partly why. And we put these ideas and and, uh, pain, painful experiences into a song in a way to try and bring it to people and bring it to uh, a room where we can maybe look at it from a different way or a different perspective. And and uh, is is the exact lyric I live in a country where I want to be free or I can't be free or does it does it vary across the whole song? Uh oh geez I'll have to think now Sean. Uh, I live in a country where I want to be free. Yes. Yes. So, yes. so you still have a sense that there's a lot of work to get to that free point of freedom. Yes, I think we have quite an amount of work to do um in Ireland. But I think we're also doing a lot of work mm. um to promote women and so I think that's something that's that's good but yes we we definitely have an amount of work to do and, and you mentioned there within the song um, I live in a country you know this reference to witches the witches that, that weren't burnt in, in the past and you, you referenced the Kalyuk or the Kalyuk has been an important the idea of the Kalyuk has been an important element of, of fo- uh, inspiring you as well from folklore yeah, you know, I think she's there, isn't she? She's out there. We kind of almost have her in in the DNA. And Kylock is what um, the wise woman, or also known as a witch or a, or a hag. Mm. And she was very powerful. You know, she she can collect rocks and pile them up into mountains, and she can whip up storms. And um, she brings in the winter. I thought one of the m- more beautiful stories was of the Kylock lying down in the winter months to pass on the baton to spring. And I thought, you know, of women helping each other, particularly younger women, and and passing on wisdom and lore and holding each other up. Mm. So she's very much there in that sort of cyclical approach um, to life.
And I know that there are a number of, of, of issues around which you're, you're very active uh, in terms of campaigning, but one in particular you might tell me a little bit about is a campaign for gender balance in Irish music that you're, that you're involved in. Yeah, I've been really proud uh, of um, the work that Fair Play have done, uh, play being the Irish word for discussion. Mm. And, you know, we, we came together in 2018 and we've done an extraordinary amount of campaigning uh, um, on many different levels, uh, panel discussions, gigs, meetings around the country, academic conferences, and ended up actually speaking to politicians and really just trying to um, uh, promote uh, women in in music and also talk about more difficult issues, obviously, of harassment and assault. And I'm really, really... Uh, enriched by the camaraderie of all of the women and men yeah. who campaigned. And we it's a good news story in that, you know, we, we achieved a lot and uh, Minister Martin, in fairness to her, uh, listened very carefully and we've, um, she has initiated Safe to Create, which is a place for people to go, uh, which is the first of right. its kind in the country, which oh, is great. I'm for... moving the right direction for sure. We'll finish, mm. uh, Karen, with a call, song called, which I really loved on, the, on mm. the album, I must say, and there's something very touching about it. I think it's very personal to you, in fact, Daughter Dear. Mm-hmm. Um, this, I, you spoke to us about the play that this is from. I Walked Into My Head, a play written back in 2020. You were on with Sophie Motley talking about that to me. So just t- set up a little bit about, about what this song is and who you're speaking to here. Daughter Dear kind of gives it away, I think. Yeah. So, yeah, it's... Uh, well, in the play, we had the piano as a kind of a, a cradle and as a grave and uh, as a piano and as a kind of a place of safety. Mm. And um, it's a kind of an old Irish idiom, you know, where you, you speak to people who are in the grave. They either come back as a ghost or or um, talk to you actually from the grave. Uh, so this is me speaking to my mother from the grave. And I'm joined by uh, Rihanna Connolly on this oh. song. This is Daughter Dear Then from Karen Casey. Lovely to speak with you this evening, Karen. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. What is it you wish to say? Oh, mama, my dear The prayer in the rain It beats a sad Familiar refrain A little snippet of the song Daughter Dear there from Karen Casey and that is from Karen's new album Nine Apples of Gold. It will be released this Friday, February the uh, 24th. She'll be on tour throughout Ireland during the month of April. You can find out full details on her website which is karencasey.com and that's Karen spelt K-A-R-A-N karencasey.com With a back catalogue including In the Dark Room, Essayism and Suppose a Sentence, Brian Dillon has long since established himself as one of our leading writers of non-fiction. His new book, Affinities, is a critical and personal study of that term, affinity, explored through short essays inspired by a range of visual objects and works of art. Delighted that Brian Dillon joins me on the line this evening. Brian, I suppose I, I say that it's it's critical and personal study of the term affinity, but kind of that's what an affinity is. It is both a critical appreciation of something and a personal appreciation of something, if that's a, a kind of a loose definition that we could use. 
I think it's a very good definition. Yeah, I guess that that's what attracted me really to um, to writing a book that uh, that touched on some of the artists and some of the images that I've been fascinated by for years was was this idea that I was writing something critical, as you say, um, that brought a certain kind of you know knowledge and research and so on and judgment with it, but that it could be something a bit more vulnerable. Um, mm. And and I think I said in the in the introduction something a little bit stupid in it in some way. <laughs> so you you Something. you allowed yourself to be silly if the if the if the chance arose. I allowed myself, I suppose, to to think about and to try and write from a place of uh, almost a sort of dumb fascination mm. with, with some of these things and some of these works. You also allowed yourself to pick out an absolutely favourite work of art, or as you say. At least some of the time, it is your favourite work of art. This is um, Andy Warhol's Outer and Inner Space, a, a short film. Maybe, first of all, tell us a little bit about the film and then whether it, at this current moment, is your favourite work of art, since, seeing as it's only that some of the time. So, um, Andy Warhol's uh, Outer and Inner Space um, is uh, a film from 67. It's one of his very early uh, experiments with video, in fact. So, it's a film um, shot on, on 16 millimeter film of uh, the, the Warhol superstar Edie Sedgwick sitting in front of a video screen. So, there are two Edies on screen. Actually, in fact, there are four because the, the image is doubled hmm. and you're seeing two slightly different scenes. And it's just this extraordinary scene of somebody, you know, so beautiful, so uh, tragic in a way, uh, the life of Edie Sedgwick, watching her own image um, and thinking about her own image. And the, it has sound, but the sound is very, very muted. And you can only very occasionally work out what she's saying. But it's so obvious that in a way, it's a film about thought. And, you know, he's pointing this film at somebody that that he thinks of as a kind of beautiful blank somebody for him to project his ideas and ambitions onto but i think what you actually see in the film is edie sedgwick kind of thinking really hard about that situation mm. and i suppose that that's what's always fascinated uh, me about, about that work i think today it probably is my favorite work again Ah, so that's good. Phew, because I was going to, going to have to go into taking the risk of asking you what was what it was today if it wasn't that. But I, I'm interested that you talk about projection there because I think, as in Andy Warhol projecting something onto to the the subject in the in the film itself. Because I think in some ways, again, come back to that idea of affinity and a personal connection with something. Isn't there an aspect to a great work of art, as you've just described, the Andy Warhol film, where it allows us to project something onto the whatever it is we're looking at? Therefore, we think it's speaking directly to us. But in fact, it's speaking to us because we've told it what to say back. I suppose that that's true. Um, the, the idea of affinity, the, this word kind of came to me because I realized, um, having written the, the, the two books, that, the, the two last books that you mm. mentioned earlier, a book about essays and a book about sentences, that I was using this word affinity all the time. And I wondered kind of what I meant by it. And it turns out that the history of that word means something kind of natural. You know, affinity is like a, a kinship of, of blood or family. Um, but it also, at various points, means the opposite. It means something that's been kind of determined, that's official, that's a kind of ritual. So we talk about, you know, uh, affinity having to do with marriage, being uh, affianced, you know, having a mm. fiancé. All, all these words are, are, are linked. So I think it, 
you know, in terms of projection, there, there is this sense that what you're seeing when you look at a work of art or what I look uh, when I'm looking at a work of art as a uh, as a writer, it's partly I'm trying to figure out what's really there. You know, what what is it that I'm seeing? And at the same time, as you say, inevitably projecting something onto it. Mm. And I wanted, I suppose, to, to, to give myself the kind of license in this book to do both of those things at the same time. I was interested to see that I I kind of see, I don't know if it's right to say I'm seeing a picture of a migraine. I'm seeing a picture of a migraine aura in the book. This was spoke to you directly because I think, was it as a teenager that you experienced a, a, a period of time when you had migraine on a reasonably regular basis? Yeah, it was. I've had a couple of phases in my life. I mean, many people are, are much worse off than, than I've been uh, in this regard. But when I was about 15, I, I, I suddenly, I think I was in a science class and I was looking at my textbook and suddenly I couldn't see. Suddenly there was this strange blob in my, in my field of vision. And um, it turns out that that blob, which kind of for a lot of people who suffer from migraines, it starts off as a sort of vague shape and then it kind of crystallizes. It turns into a kind of jagged line and sometimes it flashes. Hmm. Sometimes there are colors involved and it's called a scintillating scotoma. It's part of the kind of wider uh, phenomenon of the migraine aura where you see things or you hear things. And there's a long history um, and it really kind of comes together in the 19th century of trying to represent these things. Um, and of, of trying to draw them. And there's this extraordinary engraving from 1870 that, that I, I came across by somebody called Hubert Airy, um, who wrote an essay for the, the Royal Society about, about migraine. Um, and it's just the most amazing image, this, this jagged, it's like a kind of constellation looming out of the dark. Mm. And Airy says it's a photograph which is a really strange thing to say. It's a photograph of a migraine. But I guess I, I was fascinated by the idea that, you know, you're, when, when you're in this state and your mind, your brain uh, is doing this thing to you neurologically, you're also kind of inventing this extraordinary abstract shape. Yeah. And some critics would say that there's a, there's a kind of history in, um, in abstract art and in, even in some medieval art where you have these kind of jagged uh, forms that are actually possibly representations of the the migraine aura. And any migraine sufferer, I'm sure, would agree that the word scintillating is something of a misnomer there. Or maybe it's the way we normally use the word scintillating that is incorrect. There's nothing, to my mind, there's nothing scintillating about a a migraine. I think scintillating literally means uh, flashing. Yeah. It, It means, yeah, it means kind of giving off sparks, you know. So it, it's it's our kind of misuse of that word in some ways as something exciting that maybe was what kind of caught my mind in connection with my migraines. Um, this was your first experience of a migraine. Would have been in around the time that you watched Brideshead Revisited as well, which is another work that you, you pick on as having an affinity with. That's right. I mean, so some things in in this book are, you know, works of contemporary art. Um, mm. Some of them are very old. Um, some of them are things that I've experienced as a as a critic, or as a writer, or just you know, kind of going to museums and galleries. And some of them are things that I've been attached to for for years. And I suppose Brideshead Revisited, um, the the TV version of Brideshead Revisited from yeah. from nineteen eighty one, is a is a, a work that I've kind of gone back to many many times. I must have seen it a, a dozen times, and 
I, I don't think I saw it in 1981. I think my parents probably didn't let me watch it. I remember people coming in to school the next morning uh, and saying, you know, Charles and Sebastian, they're gay and all of this stuff. And I had been fascinated by what, what this program might actually be like. And then I did see it in the mid, mid 80s. I think Channel 4 showed it. Um, and I went, I've gone back to it over the years. And now I'm quite suspicious, I suppose, especially politically of the, the kind of world that it it, uh, it represents, this kind of aristocratic and detached, also strike-breaking, this extraordinary scene where they uh, they, they go to kind of uh, resist or break the, mm. the general strike. But at the same time, I'm still wrapped up in it um, by its kind of presentation of this extraordinary sort of idea of beauty. So you, you can have an um, affinity with something that you don't necessarily, to put it in a simplistic term, that you don't necessarily agree with, if you like. Yeah, I suppose that's one of the things that in places uh, my, my book is is not so much arguing for, but just trying to kind mm. of um, perform, is that uh, a work like that, um, there are aspects of it, uh, as you say, that that, that I, I love, and there are things I'm suspicious of it. And I was really interested in kind of writing out of the love this time um, uh, in that particular essay rather yeah. than than setting it in a larger kind of more critical kind of context. Yeah. And I must say there were a couple of images that jumped out of the, the book at me as well. The Eileen Gray, there's a snapshot of, of her herself and an interior of the famous uh, E1027 house. There's also the wonderful picture of Billy Whitelaw's mouth still from the televised performance of Not I. But I want to finish up with something that perhaps is one, one of the more personal aspects of the book, of the book Yet the woman about whom you're speaking here in some ways is not present in in the photograph. I'm talking about um, the, the, the pictures and, and what you're talking about in the essay, the charismatics. You might tell us about that and where it fits into your, your family life. Yeah, so the, this this essay is is about, well, it, it kind of starts from a photograph that appeared in the Irish Times in, I think, the early 90s. And it's a photograph of a, a charismatic prayer meeting. Mm. And I can't even remember now where I first came across this photograph, but it sparked something because my own mother, um, who died when I was 16, she died in 1985, so uh, some years before this this photograph, she'd been heavily involved with the charismatic movement um, in the 70s and uh, early 80s. And I had never gone to any of these prayer meetings, but I would hear about them, you know, these massive meetings at places like the RDS, where sometimes people would speak in tongues and there would be kind of laying on of hands and so on. And I was always, as a, as a child and a teenager, kind of scared by, by that image in my mind. Um, and I found this photograph and I, I sort of found myself looking for my mother, mm. if you know what I mean, and, and, and recognizing as an adult recognizing something in these pictures, uh, in in these faces, rather. Uh, almost everybody in the picture is, uh, is a woman, a middle-aged woman, mostly. Um, and kind of suddenly feeling this um, uh, sympathy um, for these people. And I became really interested then in representations of, uh, of those meetings in that period. There's a couple of uh, short uh, RTE films, TV uh, films um, from, from the 80s as well. And there's just this image of, of people in a kind of ecstasy. Um, yeah. And again, I suppose it's a, it's a little bit like the thing with, with Brideshead. You know, you, you don't have to believe fully in it to be kind of touched by it. Yeah. Um, I, I, so I might, I might not. 
I might not have the faith, but 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 something something draws me in in into that. Yeah, well, I, I, and I did, and I thought that connection with your mother was particularly moving and and touching in your description uh, of that essay and and the photographs and films in and around it. Thanks for sharing your thoughts with us this evening, Brian. Thanks so much, Sean. Thanks for having me. Not at all. That's uh, Brian Dillon speaking to us about his latest collection of essays, which is called Affinities. It's published by Fitzcarraldo Editions. A loose reimagining of Sergio Cabucci's Spaghetti Western favourite, Django, stars Matthias Schoenart and Numi Rapace and tells of a 19th century drifter whose arrival in a burgeoning US town of New Babylon spells trouble for its inhabitants. A violent, jaded cowboy, Django is looking for his long-lost daughter, who he believes is alive and well in this town, and when and if he finds her, it sets off a chain of events that will bring to light the dark and dreadful secrets of New Babylon's founders. Uh, Join this evening by Chris Washler who's been watching uh, the TV series it's it's told over 10 installments do you need to know anything about the movie starting out here or is that a good starting point Chris I don't think so actually because a few hours in I'm not seeing much in the way of any similarities to uh, you know for between this series hmm. and the Sergio Cabucci film from 1966 it's Django by name and there you know there are some themes in there and there's some ideas and there's a few little hat tips every now and then uh, but it's a different ball game altogether. I mean, that film, released in 1966, made a star out of Franco Nero. It was made actually in response to, and hopefully to better, the success of Sergio Leone's A Fistful of Dollars. That film had been such a hit for Leone, for Clint Eastwood, that, you know, filmmakers were kind of scrambling to make mm. the next big spaghetti western hit. It was a hit in Italy, but it was actually more of a cult favourite outside of Italy. And I think the reason for that, it was, it, it had trouble getting a release in other countries. The original Django was so violent and so brilliant as well and we'll get back to the whole kind of you know Django taking place over 10 hours whereas this original film took place over 90 minutes and told its story very well yeah. in 90 minutes it actually struggled to get a release in countries outside of Italy for its violent content so we're taking this idea of this drifter you know you know, wandering around the country looking you know to kind of right the wrongs of his past we're taking some of the ideas about what sort of man he is and you know how he kind of treats others but we're going in a new direction with this series and I guess the other thing that springs to mind is Tarantino's Django Unchanged, yeah. not least because this television series Django is set in 1872 seven years after the seven years Civil, after war Civil War in the United States and I think uh, has has slavery been abolished at the point when we meet New Babylon is this kind of yes you- well, is it a utopia? It's supposed to be a city where everything is great. Yeah, it's in the early days of its uh, of its utopia building, and 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 also, but but in much the same way that Django Unchained had nothing to do with Django, other than it was a little bit of an homage at times, and you mm. had Franco Nero in it. Again, this is a whole new playing field. So yes, it is set in 1872. Uh, the, the the Civil War is over, slavery has been abolished, but there are large parts of the South, as you know, the the series actually tells you on screen at the beginning, where you know situations for 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 people. Of colour are actually still dire. So you have these former slaves that have gone uh, further afield and have decided to set up their own city, but it's still early days and when we first kind of, you know, step into New Babylon, we see the former slave turned uh, city founder, John Ellis is his name, played by Nicholas Pinnock. He is kind of having trouble keeping the town afloat financially. So what he's done is he set up these fight nights where every week you have, you know, deranged men from other towns visiting this town, handing over their weapons. They all put their weapons in this coffin, which for 
anyone who's seen the original Django that'll be a nice little reference to the film there and they all gather in this you know barn to watch people fight and every week the house fighter always wins and that's how you know John Ellis gets to keep his money all these fights are fixed but someone comes in to challenge them and that is Matthias Schoenaert's Django a man who has a past that he doesn't want to talk about and you know the minute you Mm. see him this guy's going to win where does uh, Elizabeth, uh, the character played by Numi Rapace, and her son Adam, played by Joshua J. Parker, where do they fit into the story? They are over in the rich and racist town of Elmdale, and she is the lady of Elmdale, and she has taken it upon herself to rid the world of sinners. She is a God-fearing woman who very clearly has a past with either Django or John, or maybe even both of them. I don't want to give too much away, mm. but as I say, she's taken it upon herself to rid the world of evil. And by in, in and what I mean by that is she she gathers up her troops at night and she goes out to you know, in one night, burn down a brothel to kind of, you know, uh, uh, target anyone who has an interest in New Babylon, anyone that wants to flee and live and live a better life in New Babylon. Um, she is John Ellis's and Django's enemy. They just don't know it yet. All right. Well, let's have a listen to a clip of her then, Numi Rapace as Elizabeth, interrupting her son, Adam, played by Joshua J. Parker. He's playing some new music on the piano at this point in time. Uh, they've severed disagreements as life goes on, but they certainly are disagreeing here about race, God, and probably the music as well. When did this new music arrive? Yesterday. The composer's name's Tchaikovsky. I read me the notes. He learns fast. He has a gift for music. No. You have a gift for music, which the Lord has given you because you were deprived of the gift of sight. Aaron, he is only here to make you blossom. Hmm. Adam, the world is divided between masters and servants. The Creator did not place different races on the earth. Just the strong could destroy the weak. That's what the president said. President Grant doesn't speak for the Lord. And you do? I'm an echo of our Lord's wisdom. Back to Beethoven. That's telling. That's Elizabeth, played by Numi Rapace there, and Adam, played by Joshua J. Parker, in a scene from Django, new 10 part TV series, which Chris Wasser has been watching for us. You get a sense of the, 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 the pace of the piece from that particular clip there, yeah. Chris. And there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of discussion like that that went on. Certainly in the in the section of it that I saw, a mixture of discussion and heavily, hugely violent um, sections as well. Oh yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's one of the ways I suppose that it is. You know, there there are some ways where it's similar to the original film and the violent content in this. Yeah, it's not for the faint-hearted, and it is quite talky, unfortunately. Um, and which probably explains why Matthias Schoenaert playing the role of Django is probably the best performer here. He's you know he's fully decked out in all sorts of cowboy paraphernalia, you know, and he has the hat and he has that weather-beaten look, and he's got these clothes to tell us that he's mm. been wandering the earth for years looking for his long-lost daughter. But I think actually his finest prop is his eyes. You know, he has that. He's a wonderful actor and he does have that look of a man who just wants to find what's left of his family and make and make a home. But he doesn't actually get much dialogue. Unfortunately, when the performers start to speak in this thing, you do you really do get the sense that, yes, this is a European production. And as a result, 
people like Numi Rapace, who is a wonderful actor, her accent is all over the place. And there is this sense that nobody really knows what part of America, or that, that maybe the performers mm. don't know what part of America they're supposed to be in. So it, it kind of spoils things a little bit, removes the authenticity from it. There are quite a few flashbacks in it as well. And I must say it opens with a very dramatic scene. You're yes. just watching this young boy, watching mayhem happening in and around his family and, and those close to him. Um, all sorts of things going on in the room next door. How does that, how do those flashbacks work? Because they're basically, they're telling us Django's past. They are. I think if it focused a little bit more on the flashbacks, it would be, you know, a proper Django show because these are flashbacks from Django's life. You know, mm. the idea being that his family was clearly massacred while he was fighting in, in the Civil War. And the fact that he was fighting on the wrong side in the Civil War, which is something that we'll figure out for ourselves and which will be addressed, you know, full on later on in the, in, in, in the story. The fact that he wasn't there, his daughter, who is his only remaining family member, is you know holds him responsible for not looking out for the family so as I say he's been gone for years and he actually thought you know he held on to this belief I don't know where he gets it from that some someone must have survived and his daughter has survived and she uh, her name is Sarah and she is actually going to marry John Ellis the founder of the town and she is and, and she also helped to, to, to found Babylon and when they meet each other it's not a spoiler to say mm. that they do meet each other this happens in the, in, the, in, in the early section of the first episode she wants him to leave but he's having none of it he's going to stick around yeah I'm going to hear a sense of the, the kind of dynamic between them here Matthias Schoenart as you say as Django here comes face to face with his daughter Sarah played by Lisa Vicari uh, and she is not surprisingly she's rather angry at him because he wasn't there when the family needed him to be there are you going to marry him are you going to marry him yeah John saved my life he was there that night you weren't. What are you doing? You have to go. What are you doing? You have to go. I can't ask you again. Go ahead and do it. They will find out who I am anyway. And they'll hang me. Outside your new house. You can watch me hang. So please shoot me. Just go ahead. Just do it. Go ahead. Shoot your father. That's uh, Django played by Matthias Schoenartz and his daughter Sarah played by Lisa Vicari in a scene from the opening episode of Django, the new 10-part TV series, 10-hour long series, in fact, of, of the, the telling of this tale. We, we mentioned Chris Wasser at the beginning about that this was a loose reimagining yes. of the spaghetti western favourite of Sergio Carbucci. I mean, you, you'd get no music lush piano, soft piano underneath anything in a in a, a spaghetti western it, does it move away from that style of telling the story altogether? Every now and then Numi repasses uh, 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 Elizabeth Thurman she'll say something and there'll be that little twinkle of the piano in the background mm. which is quite reminiscent of the work of Louis Bakalov who soundtracked and, 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 and composed the scores for an awful lot of spaghetti westerns including the original Django and that kind of tells us that we are dealing with something sinister there is a little bit of playfulness every now and then but mostly it takes itself very seriously and, and, and it's an awful shame because you could 
should have some fun mm. with this kind of story. Um, and I'm not going to, you know, you can see the level of work that has gone into this thing. This thing took six years to get off the ground. The, the, the set work involved, it was all filmed in Romania. It looks the part and it dresses the part. I think there's just a big problem with the tone of the performances, uh, with the casting. Uh, Matthias Schoenierz is not the problem there. Mm. He's actually quite good as Django. And just with the dialogue too, the dialogue is quite dull and unimaginative in times. And if you're going to hold their attention over 10 hours, particularly with a Western, you need something that cracks. You need something that, you know, just kind of makes it a little bit more than... Because the, the, the extent of the relationship with the father and daughter there, we don't need them telling each other things that the audience has already figured yeah. out. You know what I mean? And, and it won't be the first time that I've asked you this question and I don't think it'll be the first time I'm going to get the answer that I you're about you're to give me. Ask, yeah. Yeah. Is 10 hours quite simply just too much? Could it's, they have done is, this in six episodes or less? It's becoming a bit of a problem, Sean. And I think, ironically, there's enough here to, to, to build a two hour mm. film from it would have made for a much better film and, and unfortunately there's nothing within those first two or three episodes that would entice you to come back for more so yeah there's a good film lost inside a messy sluggish television show unfortunately I think that tells us what you thought about it Chris that's Chris Wasser the first two episodes of Django premiere on Sky Atlantic and now from on next Wednesday March the 1st Two new episodes arriving every Wednesday throughout the month of March. That time of year for the publication of a new crop of books and to showcase those books and writers, it's also time for literary festivals. This weekend, it's the Limerick Literary Festival in honour of Kate O'Brien. The event continues to celebrate the life and works of the author while attracting prominent participants from home and abroad. Don Ryan, Sean Hewitt, Bill Whelan and Duran Grefa are among the writers who will be reading from their work at this year's festival. Here is Dirini Grafer introducing and reading one of her own poems. I'm a very curious person and I'm particularly curious about learning new words. The title of this poem is a word I learned for the pale mark at the base of a fingernail and it's called Lunule. Though it grew dark and darker, how could we despair? When we remembered the crescents, pale in each fingernail, ten little moons to glimmer our grip, slips of brightness that persist, holding our hands, even in darkness. They're in the grave for their reading her poem, Lunule, one of the poets, Derin that is, who will be performing at this year's Limerick Literary Festival. On Sunday at the festival, our own producer, Keshihi, will feature at the festival discussing her Desert Island books, for, along with uh, writer and editor Niall McMonagall. I'll be listening out to find what those books are. More information on limerickliteraryfestival.com. Now, yesterday I was speaking about a great book with a great author, Sebastian Barry, in his home turf, as he told me early on in the interview of Dunlera. And he said, the place where you tramp about as a kid never leaves you. It's that concept of belonging and identity that is explored by filmmakers and husband and wife team Joe Lawler and Christine Malloy in their new documentary, The Future Tense. The film starts with Joe, Christine and their daughter on a plane from London to Dublin and Joe Lawler uh, joins me now on the line. Uh, you know, I, I'm calling it a documentary there, Joe, and I'm even questioning myself as I do that. You might tell us the, the, the kind of basic setup of the film, uh, because it's, it's yourself and, uh, and Christine who are narrating to us, but you tell us quite earlier on that that was quite early on, that wasn't the original plan. 
Hi, Sean. No, that wasn't the original plan. I just to answer that first point, though, I suppose it is a documentary, but um, it's very loosely under the genre of documentary. I suppose it belongs most clearly to the genre of or the subgenre of the essay film yeah. that, that's become quite common now in the last, I'd say, 10, 15 years. We're seeing much more uh, voices <clears throat> coming to that uh, format. Uh, so it's it's not really reportage uh, like we watched Navalny the other night. It, it doesn't exist in that kind of genre, but of the essay film. So a slightly more reflective philosophical nature, shall we say. But um, I, the premise of it is quite simple in one respect. I mean, the, the documentary or the essay film takes place as the three of us are boarding a flight at London Stansted, mm. which is one of, one of our near airports. Uh, heading back to Dublin with the prospect of going on a trip around Ireland to look at locations, potential locations for an idea we have for film, and at the same time doubling up uh, to look for a potential Mm. new home. Because at the time this began, Brexit had just been, we never mentioned the word Brexit, I have to uh, say, but I think it's pretty obvious in between the the lines that, that we're referring to what's happening in the country where we're currently living, in the UK, in in London specifically, um, that something, it had set something in motion, a kind of strange atmosphere had turned and it made everybody feel very strange. And Molly's friend had said, who's Italian immigrant parents, said, you know, are are we going to have to leave the country? And it seemed at the moment somewhat, you know, no, that's very alarmist. Yeah. But in fact, it was quite a... There was a lot of that fear around the time. a lot of fear generated and hasn't gone away. It has not dissipated. So that was like the... The starting, starting point, point, the trigger point. Yeah, in yeah. fact, as at one point on the aeroplane, because it, it cuts back and forth from, it's almost as if the entire essay, film essay, takes place over the period of your flight from Stansted to Dublin. It kind of yeah. that's that's the starting point and ending point in some ways of it. And at one point, Christine, you're, you're flying over the Irish Sea, and Christine does say, "There's going to be a border down this seemingly somewhere, yeah. but but how and where and what's it going to look like and all of that type of thing." But let's listen to a little bit of your own narration then. Um, while you're on yeah. the plane, um, and again, it's it's kind of looking at the, the questions that you think the film might be going to ask, and hopefully find some answers to. Flying through the airspace between England and Ireland, as I look out of the window, I'm wondering: is there something particularly English or Irish about that airspace? Which is really to say, how do you grab hold of a national identity? What is it? Where does it reside? In a place? A person? or perhaps in colours, white, red, blue, green, white, orange. And just going through the, the colours of the flag there, that's a, that's a clip from yeah. uh, the, the film uh, The Future Tense. Uh, Joe Lawler, one of the directors, along with his wife, Christine Malloy, writer, director, producer and starring in, we can say, because it is you reading from the, the narration there. But I, I was interested, in, you read part of the narration and, and you read it just sitting at a table, I presume in your home, or certainly something that's playing, pretending to be your home possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, and you sometimes you break off and say, oh, did I get that right? Should I say that here? So, you know, the, there's no sense that, that anything but a, the fourth wall is shattered lots of times. What was the original intention for those narrative roles were they going to be acted they were going to be acted we we made a, a, a previous 
essay film called Further Beyond. And I guess in some respects, there was a kind of um, a format, if you will, that came out of that. In an odd way, we, we've been screening it in various places and somebody had referred to it as being something of the podcast quality about it. People sat at, we're now used to seeing people sat at tables with microphones in front of them with pieces of paper. Um, so in a way, it, that was the, the first incursion to this format. And we did have at the time two actors in the guise of Denise Goff and Alan Howley. And for part two, although I think you don't have to see part one to see mm. part two, they're kind of standalone, we had invited Alwyn Fuere uh, to come along and be one of the performers. And Alan, again, I think Denise was off doing Star Wars or something at the time. But the pandemic happened, and then, you know, it, it went in a different direction. Yeah. We had to stand in for them, who were, in a sense, standing in for us. So the acting role in part one was them their asides were to us, the directors behind the camera. But because we then realized that we're going to have to do this, uh, it sort of put us under, because we're not actors, it put us under a strange kind of pressure. Mm. But it also meant the journey of the film would go in a different direction and the material. So I guess if you look at it now, because it becomes quite raw at times and quite personal to us, yeah, you can't... Well, I don't know about you, but I can't imagine actors actually doing that part now. I think it would have to have been us because of the way we're talking about the material and the way in which we dip back into our own personal archive yeah. when we had our daughter, who's 20 now, but she was a baby at the time. So we showed a, a video we took every year over a number of, well, several uh, many years and see us and her, her getting older. Uh, and us definitely getting older. Yeah. So there was this kind of sense that because we're now in in the frame, uh, we, we kind of wanted to uh, delve into ourselves a little bit more in the process of this material. So I think that did have a big impact. The pandemic certainly had a, an interesting impact on the journey and the life of the, the film. Yeah, and the other thing is, I mean, and, and again, this is why I was, I was interested in that thing about the actors. You, you, we, we, you talk directly to your your two brothers at different points along mm -hmm. the way. Your sister appear, makes an appearance as well, briefly just to say mm -hmm. hello to us, really, but I suppose you didn't want to leave her out. Um, but you get really into a very personal area when it comes to your mother. Mm. Yes. Yeah, I think that was a, an, an inevitable thing that I, I was probably holding off until I kind of could feel the connection between the rest of the material. I suppose the material, it, it's I mean, normally we would make fiction films, so we're editing a new fiction yeah. film at the moment. And that process is developing an idea, developing a script, trying to get finance for the script, filming it. And so that's, that's a very particular way and quite a traditional way of working. This way of working is very different. You will develop a small piece of material, go and film, come back, have a look at what you've shot, try to understand it. And sort of these separate satellites of content start to develop. And I guess when we started to think about the country over here and the sort of trauma it was putting itself through, I mean, really, there was a lot of uh, traumatized people. We began to think about uh, migration, the sense of uh, uh, migrants moving around different countries. And we began to think about our parents, particularly my parents, coming over to London. And I guess inevitably you begin to think about 
you would touch on my own mother's story and her own mental health and how our identities are mutable. They're not solid, fixed things that you have when you're born and they're going to be exactly there till the end of your life. People change. Events will change mm. people and they will become different. And I guess I, in as much as I looked at myself and Christine looked at herself as we moved from Ireland to the UK, we would also look at my parents and their journey from Ireland to the UK in the 50s. But particularly what happened to her when she came back, this mental health issue began to really announce itself from the 60s onwards, right up until the up until uh, her passing away in the in the yeah. In the, in the late 90s, so in the, in the, sorry, the early 2000s. So all of these things seem to coincide, coalesce, uh, connect to each other, and they seem to be not so separate, that there was a deep relationship between our journey to the UK, uh, my mother's uh, mental health problems, what Brexit is doing to people, and so forth. So I think that's what's possibly distinctive about this essay form is that you can like that word bricolage you can pull in different aspects and make them connect and hold them up and and sort of make them sort of speak to each other and they can illuminate each other so i think that was kind of an important part of this whole um process but i did have to ask my parent my family to get permission to look at her psychiatric files that was that was an interesting moment i mean they were com completely supportive but it was an interesting part of this process was to engage in the in that document yeah, and and part of the the story here too is that you're you're searching for locations for a film you you were making in and around Rose Dugdale, a controversial character for sure herself. Mm. That film is now made. That film is shot. We are currently editing that right now as we speak. We have our first deadline this coming Monday to share it with our Screen Ireland and various partners. Yeah, that's being shot. Yeah, and so remarkably, part, part of part of what you were doing there was you were visiting locations for that film, but you were also looking at potential places for you to live uh, while while doing that. Did you find a place or are you staying where you are? Are you staying put despite Brexit? Has the fear kind of calmed down somewhat? The fear has not, the, the fear hasn't calmed down or at least the anger. I think the original part of the origin of this w was a certain kind of anger, uh, actually more than fear. Uh, but certainly for our daughter and her friends, it was a kind of a fear. Ours was much more coming from an angry place and trying to articulate that. But it was a funny thing with our daughter, you know, because we grew, we were both from Finglas. And if our daughter comes back to Finglas, she, she compares that to East London. And we would say, you know, can you imagine living here? And she went, are you kidding? And uh, so, like, there's no, there's no chance she's ever been, she would ever be interested in coming back. Although she did say that she quite liked that street up in Kalini, Vico Road, she was preparing, referring to. Good luck with that. I said, exactly. I said, oh, okay. So that seems okay. Yeah. But that was, it, it was a kind of a feeling that where do you belong? And I suppose London is not like the rest of England. I mean, London did vote to remain. Um, the rest of England, yeah, uh, unfortunately, and, and it was really an English anxiety more than anything else that I think people now in, in all seriousness, are beginning to reflect upon and say to themselves, and we're seeing yep. this more and more, it, uh, well, is this right? Was this really yep. smart at the end of the day? But uh, for now, 
We're still Step, here. Sean. Staying put. We okay, but you will be here for these. Oh, I think for the screening. Future tense is what uh, Christy Malloy, or Joe Lawler, has been telling us about. Co-directed with his wife, Christy Malloy. It screens at the IFI on Wednesday, the first of March, as part of the Dublin International Film Festival. The festival itself runs from the twenty-third through twenty-third uh, of February. That is through until March the fourth. Diff.ie for full details. That's our lot for this evening. Researchers by Liam Murphy, uh, Amandine Passadevine, and Paula Shields. Mark McGrath was on sound this evening. Michelle Gibson was the broadcast coordinator and tonight's programme produced by Kay Talk to you tomorrow night at 7 here on RT Radio 1. John Creedon will be with you after the news.